Well, good morning. My name is Ray, and I'm so, so thankful to be here with each and every one of you today. I want to celebrate with you just a few things happening in the life of our church. First of all, this last week we had uh, seven deacons ordained into uh, our deacon ministry here, which is exciting, and we're thankful for God raising up new leaders in our midst. Uh, and then second of all, we ordained uh, Bryant Boaz, our pastor at Palmyra, our other location. So we're thankful for that. If you see him, say congratulations. And we're excited about how God continues to raise up leaders uh, to see lives transformed. Just a couple of words of encouragement for you as a church. Whenever you see leaders being reproduced in the life of a church, that's a good sign. That's a good sign that we're a healthy church, not a perfect church, but a healthy church. So... We have been in this preaching series on Joseph for the last eight weeks. Today, we mark the end of our preaching series. And we've had a theme throughout the preaching series. And we're all going to say it out together. We're going to put it on the screen. All right, so here we go. I'm going to make it. It's not how I thought it might go. The journey may take longer than I thought. But with God, I'm going to make it. That's right. Would you pray with us? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we're about to enter into. And God, I, I pray that I would hide behind your word, and I pray that your word would speak and it would transform and inspire in challenge in so many ways. Thank you so much for this opportunity. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you are going to be given a little puzzle piece, and just kind of take that and put that ne next to you. Um, it, we'll, I'll allude to that and talk about that in just a little bit. All right, so as you get it, go ahead and take it, and we're trusting that you can do two things at once. If Father of the Century Award existed, I would nominate this individual. This guy's name is John Hughes, and you may not know who John Hughes is, but he was in the Louisville uh, Cardinals marching band some years ago. But he didn't have a, a uniform like they all typically wear. He actually just wore jeans and a windbreaker when everyone else was wearing the typical uniform. What he actually did is he was pushing someone in the wheelchair, his son. His son was born as someone who couldn't uh, stand, walk in any capacity at all. Also, his son was born without eyes and couldn't see, severely handicapped. His son's name, Patrick Henry Hughes. At an early age, really, really small, nine months of age, his dad put him on the piano and he realized the piano began to soothe the young child. And so as he began to grew, grow, he began to pluck at the piano. Well, one thing led to the next. He's two, three, four, five, and he's taking requests at the piano. Into high school, he's got a 3.5 GPA. He's playing in a band all over the area. He's also very wild, wildly known and, and, and loved by many. And then he goes into college and he joins a Louisville Cardinal marching band. And there his dad would push him around and they put these thick wheels on his wheelchair so that he could navigate. And they would practice 12 hours sometimes every summer during the Louisville Cardinal marching band season. And his dad said that he did the best they could to keep up, dodging the tubas and trying not to bowl anybody over. Uh, I love what young Patrick Henry Hughes says. He says, I was born carrying a bag of lemons. I think my father would have preferred oranges. But you can't turn lemons into oranges no matter how hard you try. Mom and dad have taught me how to hang in there. But here's the thing. When the, when the family goes to bed and when um, even Patrick goes to bed, what happens is that then the father leaves the house and he goes to work all night long. 
If there was an award for father of the century, this would be the man. Now, here's why I tell you that story. Here's why I tell that incredible story with you. That's you and me in the wheelchair. We're there in the wheelchair, and and we can't see in front of us. We can't see beside us. We don't know what's in front of us. In fact, we don't even know where we're supposed to go. But then that's our heavenly father pushing the wheelchair. And he's there, and he's turning us, and he's stopping us, and he's propelling us where we need to go every step of the way. As we end our series today, we're going to learn how God's plan is unbreakable and how his redemptive story is so very clear. As we turn to Genesis chapter 49 and 50, I have a Bible this morning. I invite you to turn there. Genesis chapter 49 and 50. If you have your Bible, smartphone, or tablet, we welcome you to get one of those out. And you can use a Bible in the hymn in the seat back in front of you. Or if you would uh, like to take that home with you, it would be our gift to you. So we've been in this series, and many of you are very, very familiar with the narrative of Joseph, I'm sure. Well, just in case you're not, uh, a family in our church uh, did a little bit of a modern-day rendition of the life of Joseph so that their family could really, really grab a hold of this narrative. And so I thought I would share it with you. This is the Nesmith family and their boys really retelling the story of Joseph in their own way. Braxton's dad loved Braxton very much. He loved him so much so that he gave Braxton a beautiful colored basketball. Braxton's brothers didn't like Braxton or the beautiful basketball. They make him go over to a neighbor's house to do chores. The brothers showed the basketball to their father. They said, we found these, but we can't find Braxton anywhere. Braxton's dad was distraught. Meanwhile, Braxton worked hard at the neighbor's house, and God was with him. One of Braxton's jobs was to organize the pantry. He knew where all the food went. Well, Braxton's brothers became very hungry, but they had no food where they were. So their father sent them over to the neighbor's house to ask for food. Braxton's brothers did not recognize Braxton, but Braxton recognized his brothers. Then he introduced himself to his brothers once again, and they reconciled. And then Braxton said, I want you to bring the youngest brother. The brothers asked their dad if they could take their brother over to the neighbor's house, and Braxton was overjoyed to see the little brother. The end. Well, didn't they do a good job? Yeah, I thought so. That's a modern-day rendition of what we've been learning in and through the life of Joseph. And we come to chapter 49, and we're going to learn about two funerals. And those two funerals, they bookend uh, this thesis that is the life of Joseph, really the thesis of the book of Genesis, and the thesis of all of the Bible in many ways. So we come to 49, and Joseph's father Jacob is on his deathbed, and he leans forward. He brings his sons in close, and he gives him his last words. Look at it with me in verse 29. He says to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father in the cave in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, the cave in the field of Mechpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham brought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron, the Hittite. 
Now, why in the world would Jacob give you those specific words? All right, quickly, I want to just give you a little snapshot of history. Genesis chapter 23. You don't have to turn there now. You can read about it later. But in essence, Jacob knew about his ancestors. Abraham, one of his ancestors, had been promised by God that he was going to one day um, be in a nation that his ancestors and his family would be a part of. What a time they just owned this little small place in Ur. Well, his, his wife passes away, and so he has a choice. Am I going to bury her in Ur, or am, am I going to go to the land of Canaan where God has promised us someday? He goes there, he haggles with um, Ephron the Hittite, and he buys this little bit of sliver of property there. And with great trust and faith, Abraham purchases a piece of property that one day God is going to make all of theirs, like a little small piece of the pie, so to speak. An amazing, amazing step of faith for Abraham. It'd be like this. You or I going to a land trust and saying, I know that in 500 years a hotel's going to be built on Times Square. I want to rent a room there for New Year's Eve night. That's the kind of planning that Abraham is doing. Fast forward in time, Jacob now says, look, I want you to bury me where Abraham bought that piece of property. And so that's exactly what happens. He passes away in verse 33. We go into chapter 50. Half of all, or the first half records the funeral of Jacob. Then Joseph is extremely sad, as we see. He's extremely um, just overtaken with sadness. And Egypt is sad for Joseph's sake, to the point where they embalm the man, Jacob, meaning they take out his organs, they put him full of herbs, and it's to help the body smell good and also bring about an assist in the afterlife that the Egyptians believed in. And then they 70 days celebrated Jacob. And that's a big deal because pharaohs were celebrated 72 days. That's how much they loved Joseph, that they would celebrate their daddy, his daddy like that. Then they take Daddy Jacob all the way to the field where Abraham bought it, and the guys come back, the brothers, and they unpack, and then they go to Joseph, and this is where we pick up in chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? So they went And sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I will ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. So the brothers are worried. Will little brother seek revenge now that daddy's gone? And Joseph's thinking, it's been 40 years since those things have happened, and yet you still won't bury the hatchet. So we come to verses 19 and 20, and from these two verses, we're going to bring and learn two incredible life lessons for us today, 21st century application. In verse 19, Joseph replies to them, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. In other words, hey, listen, it's cool, okay? It's, that's never been my intention. And then he says, am I in the place of God? Am I, in other words, he says, I'm not going to cross that line. I'm not in control. Am I in control? No, I'm not in control. God is. I'm not in God's place. I never have been and I don't want to be. But then the serpent said to Adam and Eve, do you want to be like God? In the book of Genesis. So we have at the beginning of Genesis, you find Adam and Eve leveraging all that they have for their own good, so to speak. And then Joseph's completely different. 
Reminds me of this guy by the name of Roger Cadenhead. I want you to get to know him a little bit. He's a kind of a futuristic thinker. The Pope that currently leads the Catholic Church today was about to be appointed, and Roger knew this was upcoming. And so he bought every domain website name of every cardinal in the Catholic Church, knowing that one of them would become an appointed the Pope. Well, okay, so what happens is the Pope is appointed, and so the Catholic Church comes to Roger Cadenhead and says, hey, can we buy this domain name off of you? And they're expecting him to take them for all they're worth because the Catholic Church is very wealthy, of course. And Roger says, you know what? I'm a lapsed Catholic at best. And also, I really don't want a billion Catholics mad at me. So I have two requests. The first request was I would like a, a papal hat, just like the Pope wears. And the second request is I want a three-day stay at the Vatican. And that's exactly what he gets. He gets a papal hat and a three-day stay at the Vatican. And he, when he could have leveraged so much, he does not leverage all that he could. And that's exactly what Joseph did. He didn't cross that line. And here's what's so interesting. The book of Genesis begins by sharing about a couple who tried to become like God. And then the book ends with a man who knows his place. And he's not God. Now, I want you to return back to that imagery that I gave you earlier. If Patrick Hughes, the, 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 the father of the century, is pushing the wheelchair and he re represents our Heavenly Father, and our Heavenly Father has a heart that's so much greater than even a Patrick Hughes, he's guiding our way and we're sitting in the wheelchair. And what is the only thing that we are to do when sitting in the wheelchair? It's to play our instrument. That's the only thing we can do. That's the first lesson that I want you to learn this morning here, is that we are to play our instrument, but we are never to be God's substitute. Here's what I know about instruments. Without somebody strumming, plucking, singing into a microphone, an instrument doesn't sound very good. In fact, an instrument just sits up there and doesn't do anything at all. The drums and the keyboard and so on and so forth, right? Well, if you... We can recall the, the, book of Josh, or the book of Joshua with me. There's a leader, and uh, he's led the nation of Israel to cross over the Jordan River. Now they stand in front of an impenetrable city named Jericho. And there God says to Joshua, you're going to take this city. And what you're going to do is you're going to march around the city, and then you're going to blow trumpets. And that's what they do. They march around the city, and then they blow trumpets. They blow an instrument. Now, was it the fact that they had these supersonic trumpet players, that the walls had come tumbling down, as the song says? Well, no, it's not. It's that God said, I just want you to play your trumpet and I'll do the rest. I just want you to play your instrument and I'll push you where you need to go and how you need to go. Here's, here's what I'm trying to say here. Look, so many times we think that we have to be sensational and super brilliant and super good looking and have all the right things and have all the money and look a certain way and do a certain thing and blah, 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 down the line. And what God wants you to know is, look, I just need somebody to play his trumpet. And when you just play your trumpet, when you just begin to play your instrument, that is when God can use you in an unbelievable way. Now, you may say, that's a great sermon, that's great, Ray, whatever the case is, but you know, my life right now is dicey and daunting. Well, here's, here's what I want you to think about. Was Israel's plight dicey and daunting? Yes. What did God want them to do? Play your instrument. Was, jo was J uh, Joseph's life dicey and daunting? Yes. What did God want him to do? He wanted him to trust him, but more importantly, he wanted him to play his instrument because he was guiding Joseph's life. So I would like for you to repeat after me. I'm going to say a word and then I want you to repeat it. Okay. So, so repeat after me. God 
use me, I will play my trumpet. Did you mean that? Because that is what God is calling us to do. After all, think about it. You can't control the wind. You can't control um, the uh, things to move and change in time. Even the storms that came this last weekend. It's just a little bit of a taste of the helplessness we really have. So funny is the case that my pride wells up like I've got it all under control. And then one storm comes by and I realize how fragile we really are. Our role is to play our instrument. And God is to do his thing, and we're never to try to be a substitute. So the fatherless needs somebody. Play your trumpet. So the widow needs care. Play your trumpet. The friendless need a friend. Play your trumpet. The one who suffers prejudice need an advocate. Play your trumpet. Play your trumpet and never be God's substitute. Well, then we, now we find Joseph continuing with his brothers. Verse 20 Maybe this is the most famous verse in all of Genesis, maybe even in the Old Testament. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. No doubt you should memorize and underline and re-underline and circle this phrase, but let's look at it real closely for just a few moments. Joseph begins, you intended to harm me. The word harm, translated in the New American Standard Bible, is actually the word evil. God intended, they intended evil against Joseph. They had intentions. They wanted to take him down. No doubt that was their intentions. But then Joseph says, God took it and intended it for good. He intervened in history's timeline to bring about the redemption of his story. And we see this example, example, example in, in the Bible. Daniel, thrown into a lion's den. God intervenes in an incredible historical timeline comes about Ruth. Think about Ruth. Marries a husband. Husband dies prematurely. So we think. What happens then? God intervenes and does an amazing work. A couple recently that I wanted to get, your, uh, inter- get you acquainted with is Gene and Brian. Their story went viral last year. Gene and Brian, they're old in the age, and she lost her eyesight. So Brian, knowing that she lost her eyesight, he goes to cosmetology school. And now he goes, after going there, he can now faithfully apply her makeup every single day. See, this is God intervening and redeeming his purpose. You see, God allows short-term pain in order for long-term gain. Maybe the greatest story, no, the greatest story of redemption is the story of Judas Iscariot, the friend of Jesus, Sells out his good friend, Jesus Christ. Nails are thrown into the wrists and the feet of Jesus Christ. Evil is smiling from ear to ear. Finally, they've got him where they want him. The tomb is sealed. And the hopes of the disciples are completely dashed. But then God intervenes, and three days later, the tomb is emptied, and God's strong and mighty hand brings about the good and the salvation of all history. You see, human would choose evil, and yet God has taken it and used it for his greater good. You see, God allows short-term pain, but he has long-term gain in mind. The cross proves that the smile of evil is only a temporary thing. Joseph says, God meant it for good, 
And then he says in the final verses, a part of the verse, the saving of many lives. Now, what does he mean there? He certainly means the saving of the family. He certainly means the saving of the nation of Israel. But I think there's even a greater implication, and that is that he was working out the saving of God's larger purpose that he's been doing from the beginning to bring about the redemption of lives and souls so that he can spend eternity with his creation. This is his providence at work, friends. And we see this throughout Scripture. I'm going to list a few and and give you some indication of the providence that God is working, that his providence, really life hangs upon it, right? Matthew chapter 5, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But then also that God's providence is moving on our behalf. Look at Isaiah chapter 38. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. He is moving through providence in redemption. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. No matter what happens on this earth, providence cannot be thwarted. Proverbs 19, many are the plans in the mind of a God, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah chapter 8, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. You see, God's providence is founded not only upon his might, but upon his wisdom. Look at Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are your works, and wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how instructable his ways. But then they're wise, but then they're loving his providences. 2 Timothy 1, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, we gave you that puzzle piece. And you can just leave it where it is right for the moment. We gave you that puzzle piece. And so often the case, we don't really understand how a puzzle all goes together. But friend, our job is to trust the tomorrow of God over the troubles of today. Every single moment is adding up to a grander picture. And that's what Joseph is trying to communicate to his brothers. So we fast forward in the story and the life of Joseph. We come to verse 24 in chapter 50. Joseph passes away. The nation of Egypt mourns, celebrates his life. He's embalmed. He's put into a coffin. Then many years later, that same coffin is carried with Moses and then by the nation of Israel into the same exact property that Abraham had bought long ago. Do you understand what just took place here? That God is in the business of seeing all things redeemed and all things work out through his mighty and providential hand. And what happened long, long, long ago through Abraham and and the, and the promise that he knew to be the case had been now fulfilled in even Joseph's life, his bones being carried to that very same spot. You see, this, this promise that God had given them is the sovereign providential hand of God. But so often the case, we're stuck in between and kind of left with like a puzzle that doesn't really make sense, right? We all have it. 
This is the second lesson I want to give to you. And this is really the end of the series. And this is the principle that I believe is so applicable to our life right now. And that is this, that we, wish we are to trust in the heart of God when you don't see his hand. Let's think about it this way. There, there's a puzzle that we, we, we are to put together. And, and maybe you love puzzles and maybe you don't. Now, and there's several different people in this audience that put together puzzles in different ways. Some of you in this room, you, you sort puzzles. You sort them into blues and blacks and yellows and all the different colors before you begin. How many sorters do I have here when you put together a puzzle? Okay, a couple of you. And others of you are like, no, 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 that's not how you do it. You build the border. You build the wall first, right? Around the puzzle. How many border builders do I have? Yeah, most of us are border builders here. Some of you in this room are like, puzzles for the birds. I'm watching the game. How many of you are there? That's right. Some of you are there today like that. But then you're, you're building the puzzle, and there's this one little piece in the puzzle, and you don't know where it goes. And you try to mess with it, and you flip it over, and you start uh, inwardly cursing the designer of the puzzle. You're thinking, they don't know what they're doing, and they made a mistake, and I've spent umpteen hours working on this puzzle, and it's all going to go back in the box anyways. We've, some of us have been there. What do we do with that? Well, what we do with it is we go and we look on the box top, don't we? And we see the whole thing, and then we go, oh, that's where the puzzle goes. But what do we do when we have a piece in our life that doesn't make sense? It doesn't fit. We don't understand what it looks like. What do we do? Well, we don't have a box top, but God does. What do we do? We trust in his heart when we don't see his hands. I have some puzzle pieces here. Some of us in this room have been given different ones. You're holding them, maybe. Not the ones you, we gave you, but just in your life. The pieces aren't making sense. This first one here is, it has, it has to do with a job. I mean, the, you got this job, and everything seemed to be so incredible. And it looked like you were going to blow through the stratosphere in your job. Well, now it's, it's petering out, or you're facing some struggle, or you're overcome with stress. Or for instance, or maybe that you, you can't even get a job. You're struggling with trying to provide. I don't know. And you've got this puzzle piece and you don't know what to do. You know what you do? You trust in the heart of the Father when you don't see his hand. There's another puzzle piece here. This, this, this red one here. This represents our plans. Some of you have planned, you know, to, to, be a, to be a father or a mother and then a grandfather and then a great-grandfather, a great-grandmother. You have it all planned out. But somewhere along the line, something happened. Maybe it was a handicap. Maybe it was a, an early death. Maybe it was a disease. And the doctor has just recently said, listen, you, there's not much time left. And the dreams you once had and are left you with a puzzle piece and you don't know where it goes. You know what you do? Trust in the heart of the Father when you don't see his hands at work. I've got another puzzle piece here. This is a green one here. Some of you are holding this right now, and it's, it's a marriage. It's a relationship. It's a friendship. The marriage is about to end in a bitter divorce. Or you're sitting here and you are divorced. And you're holding this piece and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to take a next step. 
Or perhaps something just happened, a relationship just ended, or you said something, or she said, or he said something. And you don't know what to do. You know what you do? You trust in the heart of the Father. Even when you don't see his hand. I got another puzzle piece here. This, this one. This puzzle piece is one that's near and dear to my heart. This is the puzzle piece of circumstances that just seem overwhelming. Maybe the politics of the world or the situation, the mountain that you are looking at and the struggle that you've been going through personally and it seems like it's been all of your life or it's been recent. You don't know what to do holding this puzzle piece. I know what to do. It's to trust the heart of the Father when you don't see his hand. The last puzzle piece I want to share with you, this one. This is the heart of the puzzle piece of suffering. And you've been suffering, and you've been suffering, and you've been suffering. And you're broken to the core. And you don't know what to do. And it's in that spot you get on your knees and you trust in the heart of the Father when you don't see his hands at work. So many of you are hurting today. And I know that because I've been visited some of you in the hospital or the funeral home or whatever the case is. And we love you very much, but I want you to know this, that God is taking every single piece and he's putting them together piece by piece. And what he's doing, he's working everything out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. We trust in the heart of God, the Father, when we don't see his hand at work. And what Joseph did was he would turn his heart to the Father when he didn't see the plan, when he didn't see the hands working. Joseph would choose to trust in this hand. What would have happened if Joseph said, no, I'm not going to trust the Father? What would have happened was the narrative would have been completely and utterly different. Some of you in this room have stopped trusting the heart of the Father long ago. And you're here out of obligation, or you're here, and you don't even know you stopped, but you did. Or you know you've done it. And I know I'm, I want to talk right to you, maybe in the balcony or here on the floor, but I want to I speak to you right now. That your heavenly Father says, just like the prodigal's Father, come home. It's okay. Trust me. Trust me. Come home. Some of you right now in this place are on the verge of making the jump to not trust. You've been debating. Would you, my friend, in this moment now, from the life of Joseph, know it's time to trust in his redemptive hand? I heard this recently, and I just wanted to read it to you, and I love it so much. God sees a Joseph in you, and will you live into that? 
Your family needs a Joseph. Your workplace needs a Joseph. Your generation needs a Joseph. Your neighborhood needs a Joseph. Your descendants need a Joseph. Will you be the hinge that keeps the door from falling off? My friend, that's my prayer for you, and that's my prayer for our church, and that's my prayer for my life as well. So what I want to ask you is, will you take out that puzzle piece we gave you, and in a moment... Our musicians are going to sing a song. And as they sing, here's what I want you to think about. What are you going to write on that puzzle piece that you need to be reminded of? Do you need to write the word trust? Or do you need to write the the, the passage, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? Do you need to just draw a heart for the heart of the Father? Do you need to put on there something that I've said or something that you've heard? And then do you need to put it on your refrigerator, put it in your car, put it in your wallet or your purse or somewhere? to remind yourself that you just see one piece, but not the whole picture.